In, in reading, admittedly, uh, popular books on these subjects, since I'm not trained as a scientist, I find very often that, the, uh, that, that what I read and the world that is somehow revealed to me through these writings has an effect on me which I would probably call religious. In other words, these descriptions of the natural world evoke a sense of wonder and of awe and also have the consequence of almost bringing the mind to a stop. It's almost mind-baffling when we read these incredible numbers, for example, the number of neurons in the brain, which is about equivalent to the number of um, stars in a galaxy, billions and billions, just to stop for a moment, and instead of just gobbling up the pages of the book, but actually to reflect on the, uh, uh, the, the awesome quantity of interrelated events occurring within our skulls at any given moment is um, a witness to an illustration of um, an extraordinary uh, contingent process, something that has emerged from very simple beginnings and over millions of, of, of years has developed and become what we are now capable of experiencing on our own moment-to-moment -moment experience. And also going back to one of the questions yesterday afternoon, we tend to have the sense that the way things in the world now are simply the way it is. But when we consider the history of our species, of life, even of the planetary system, we realize that this is just a phase in something far, far greater. That in a million years' time, in two million years' time, the forms of life on this earth will very probably be largely unrecognizable from the forms that currently exist. Apparently the cockroaches and the ants will still be around, but many of the more complex higher forms of life either will have become extinct or will have evolved and mutated into forms that we currently cannot even imagine. That life is constantly on the move. Nothing is staying still. As long as conditions remain more or less constant, then the forms of life that are adapted to those conditions will likewise remain more or less constant. But once the circumstances change, and as we're aware more and more today, so the circumstances that give rise and support life on Earth are being affected by our own human behaviours, the burnings of fossil fuels and so forth and so on, the destruction of natural environments, then once those, once those circumstances shift, that too will bring into question the survivability of the forms of life that currently enjoy existence here. And all of this, I feel, points to precisely those elements of existence that the Buddha, 
two and a half thousand years ago suggested that we pay attention to if we wish to free ourselves from so much that causes us suffering. We'll go further into this in a minute. In other words, impermanence, noticing impermanence, not just saying, oh yeah, everything's impermanent, but actually paying, um, prioritizing the giving of attention to the processes of change. And again, this is something that is not, um, uh, it's not necessarily easy to do. And it's also something that can seem at times to be rather boring to watch the breath and just note the fact that it's changing or that the songs of the birds are changing or whatever it is that is changing. It, it seems a rather um, tiresome exercise at times. And I think this points to how we need to recognize how what we're doing here in meditation is not some kind of quick-fix solution to a certain difficulty or problem we might have, but rather we are seeking over time to erode and replace certain habitual perceptions of reality. And these habitual perceptions, as I mentioned yesterday, are feel as though they're almost hardwired into the system. In neuroscience nowadays speaks of a perceptual constancy. In other words, the brain itself is somehow wired to um, represent things in a way that is more or less constant and permanent. And presumably this has considerable evolutionary and survival advantages. But to pay attention to inconstancy, therefore, to pay attention uh, to uh, impermanence and change, in some ways is going against the habits of uh, our own uh, neurobiology. And that is why I think it is, uh, it, it is, in a sense, such hard work. Why we constantly uh, are, are reiterating this emphasis on impermanence. It doesn't come naturally any more than turning our attention to the other characteristics the Buddha emphasizes, those of, of dukkha, suffering, pain, discomfort. We tend not to want to focus on that. We'd rather avoid having to consider that aspect of our lives. And of course, when we come to ideas like you know, non-self or emptiness then that seems even further away from what we would normally prefer to focus on, which is namely me and how real and how wonderful I am. So all of these exercises are going against the stream, not just the stream of, let's say, conventional religious belief, as I mentioned yesterday, but perhaps the very stream of our own uh, neurobiology, the, own, the way in which we are wired to perceive ourselves in the world. Another um, way of looking at this idea of the contingency of things is to think of contingency in terms of, of non-necessity. 
I think the opposite of contingency, of something being contingent, is the idea that it is somehow necessary, that human beings are somehow necessary. There's a sense, and again a very intuitive sense, that's hard almost to define, that... um, the, the evolution, as it were, kind of had human beings like you and me in mind from the word go. And the fact that we're here is somehow a necessary outcome of some divinely or even non-divinely ordained process. But again, what's, I think, most uh, uh, striking about the theory of natural selection is that it does not suggest any... Uh, sense of purpose or aim or goal at all. And again, we can illustrate this, I think, in in any number of ways. 65 million years ago, there was a massive asteroid impact on the planet that um, is believed to have occurred probably somewhere in the region of the Yucatan Peninsula, which I think is in Mexico. And the result of that impact was such that it destroyed um, and wiped out uh, the the predominant form of uh, sentient life on Earth at that period, namely uh, the dinosaurs. And once the dinosaurs were out of the way, that then opened up a whole range of ecological niches that enabled other forms of life to to thrive and to develop, amongst those being the the early forms of mammalian life, uh, mammals like us. And it was only because of that sudden opportunity caused by the... um, impact of a large piece of rock that happened to swing into our orbit of this earth, that mammals were able to flourish and eventually to prevail as the one of the dominant life forms on this earth. But that need not have happened. Um, I don't believe in a, a thoroughly deterministic universe. Um, I think there are, even if there are distant and perhaps even necessary causes for asteroids to swing around, um, at the same time, the consequence of those impacts generates um, opportunities, generates occasions for things to happen that otherwise would not have happened. So human beings are not, as it were, therefore, necessary. They need not have happened, and as we also know, uh, there is no guarantee that they will continue. Another large meteor impact, which is on average likely to happen every 100,000 or so years, could well wipe us out as well. I find all of these ways of, 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 of considering our life somehow help to uh, put into question this uh, deep-seated assumption we have of our own necessity. 
If we take it on a much more uh, personal level, we might consider the uh, conception of our own life, the union of our mother and our father's cells at conception. And again, as we know, there are, there are millions of spermatozoa um, seeking to impregnate a particular ovum. Um, if the original conditions of my mother and father making love had been different, if the phone had rung at that inopportune moment, I may not have been born. That in my ne mother's next ovarian cycle, uh, another spermatozoan would have impregnated it perhaps, and that would have not given birth to me. I remember as a young teenager um, uh, uh, overhearing a conversation between my mother and her sister, my aunt, um, in, and they were looking through a photograph album and came to a picture of a man um, probably in the North African desert in military uniform and my mother just casually remarked um, to myself um, if things had turned out differently dear he would have been your father and I remember feeling rather undermined by that comment <laughs> And the thought occurred, well, if he had been my father, would I have been me? Would I have existed at all? No, I wouldn't. And yet the, the kind of conditions that uh, prevail, therefore, um, to give rise to this person rather than to another one, seem, although there may be distant calculable causes, to be entirely arbitrary and random and accidental. I can remember a time, you know, many occasions in my life when I've nearly gotten into an accident. I remember once in Rome, um, I was crossing the road and because I'd just come from England, looked the wrong way and nearly stepped into the path of a very fast car. Now, if that had happened, would we be here now, together? Um, in a strange way, tiny little adjustments and accidents and, uh, and deaths um, can all contribute to a very different outcome occurring um, to what is in fact actually happening now. And when the Buddha says, when this is, that arises, it almost sounds too simple. We think perhaps if I plant a seed of a dandelion, then it will produce a dandelion. But as soon as we think of anything rather more complex than that, for example, the fact that this particular group of people is in this room at this time, listening to these words, it's quite extraordinary to consider how, um, how, how many um, uh, uh, conditions and causes and circumstances and things you've read and things you've heard and choices you've made and I've got a free week here so let's go to Gaia House. Any, new, any number of tiny conditions which are just, which if, if they just turned out slightly differently, if something else had happened that had prevented your coming here, then this particular event that we're experiencing now would not have taken place. 
So there's something extraordinarily um, fragile in, uh, uh, in our experience of life. Something extraordinarily, one might even use the word, miraculous, that all of this has come together at this particular point. Uh, there's something almost very unlikely that this is happening in the way it is. And yet, counter to that perception, we have this rather kind of heavy assumption that this is just the way it is. And such an assumption also, I think, diminishes our capacity to, uh, to appreciate the extraordinariness of life itself and um, the miraculousness of things happening at all, of this, not things in general, but this particular moment. And when you sit in meditation and you uh, simply pay attention to what is occurring <coughs> sensorially, emotionally, conceptually, in your, in your body-mind at that time, that is, you're paying attention to something that has never happened before, has never ever happened in that way before, and something that will likewise never happen in exactly that way again. And yet we don't tend to see that. In fact, we tend to often be submerged in a rather deadening consciousness of our experience. We get bored. Boredom was for Baudelaire the contemporary manifestation of the demonic, the devil, was l'ennui, boredom. The fact that our lives can feel flat and dull and listless and rather pointless and we open our eyes and we open our ears and it's the same old dreary stuff going on around us day in, day out. As Baudelaire says, we could sw it could swallow the earth in a yawn. <laughs> and in that sense, I feel this, this, in this intuitive sense that things are not contingent, that they're not coming about almost miraculously out of myriad conditions, is also an intuition that somehow deadens our sense of life itself. And to that extent, I feel that meditation practice, this, the, this close and um, persistent paying of attention to these characteristics of life, is also about somehow bringing us alive, making us come alive. And as I understand it, the idea of, of Buddha, the idea of awakening, is not just about gaining some privileged insight into some mystical feature of reality that makes us enlightened. That, I think, is a very trivial way of looking at it. But rather, this whole process is about, um, is about teaching us or giving us tools to become more fully alive. Remember that the, the, the counter-image in Buddhist uh, philosophy, or let's say almost symbology, 
to the Buddha is the image of Mara. Mara is quite similar in many aspects to the, uh, the Western notion of the devil or Satan. And Mara literally means, uh, in Pali and Sanskrit, the killer. And there's a passage in the Diganikaya where the Buddha says, whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. And so we've been talking about this grasping, this grasping itself, this grasping of permanence, this grasping at uh, things being somehow necessary that that grasping is also a form of death. It is a killer in the sense that it somehow renders us inwardly dead. It confines our experience within a certain uh, fixed conception and view in such a way that we are um, somehow rendered not fully alive. It's also striking that in some of the early texts in the Pali tradition, um, the Buddha doesn't call Mara, Mara, but he calls him Namuchi. Namuchi is the name of a demon in Vedic mythology who is believed to be responsible for the failure of the monsoon. And Namuchi literally means, the word literally means, uh, the one who withholds the waters. It then takes Indra, uh, the king of the gods, to strike Namuchi with his vajra, his scepter, so that Namuchi then releases the waters. And then the monsoons fall, and then life is assured for those who are utterly dependent upon the yearly rains. It's very curious that the early Buddhist tradition identified Mara with Namuchi, with, this, with something that constricts and prevents the flowing of water. And water, particularly in India, but of course in all societies, is that which is crucial, which is the very um, vitality that allows life to happen at all. So if we think of Mara or Namuchi as that which locks us into a kind of deadness, then quite naturally it follows that awakening or being Buddha, um, letting go of grasping, this freedom of clinging, is a way of speaking about the waters, allowing the waters of our own life to flow unimpeded and freely. Now, traditional Buddhism doesn't usually draw that kind of conclusion. But I think the, uh, the, both the symbology in this mythic language of Buddha and Mara, as well as the underlying uh, philosophy, this contrast between... Uh, experiencing contingency as opposed to necessity, this experiencing of self as opposed to non-self. All of this points, I think, in a very similar direction. And I think it, it's valuable, therefore, to put aside whatever fantasies we have about 
one day becoming enlightened. And to think of our practice that we're doing here, this relentless and sometimes rather tiresome paying of attention to these features of existence as really a strategy or a means to bring ourselves more alive. It's about life, primarily. Now, this idea of contingency is also, um, as as Buddhist philosophy uh, developed, equated with the idea of emptiness, or shunyata. You don't find this equivalence in the early text, in the Pali tradition, but it becomes very much the keynote of probably the most important interpreter of Buddhism after the Buddha, uh, uh, an Indian philosopher called Nagarjuna. And for Nagarjuna, uh, contingency, the fact that things arise dependently one upon the other, is synonymous, effectively, with the idea that things are empty. Now again, we hear this word emptiness Uh, when we read anything on Buddhism. And I think it's also an idea that is um, rather difficult to grasp. I mean, I've been, you know, thinking about and trying to meditate on emptiness for many years now, and I still don't find that I can use the word empty or emptiness in an idiomatic sense. It's very difficult to incorporate that word into ordinary English without it sounding terribly negative. Um, My life's very empty. You poor thing. (laughs) um, So what what is this actually about, and why is it that it's equated with this idea of contingency? In in the Tibetan tradition in which I trained, uh, the Gelukpa, there's an enormous amount of emphasis placed on understanding what it is that emptiness is empty of. In other words, to get round the idea that emptiness is some kind of mystical state or some kind of cosmic reality that's hidden behind the veil of appearances, which is sometimes reinforced by... I mean, you probably, many of you might have come across this image that... That, that all things arise from emptiness and then return to emptiness. Now, that's a, a nice poetic trope, but philosophically it's a disaster. It suggests that there is a kind of, uh, you know, some, some, some sort of trans, transcendent ultimate ground of being, which Buddhists call emptiness, out of which things spring and into which they fall back, a bit like the Tao or something. But this totally fails. In fact, it, 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 it severely misrepresents what, in fact, this term emptiness refers to. Emptiness is empty of, according to Tsongkhapa, and I'm sorry if the language is a bit technical, but it's empty of what they call rangshingidrupa, inherent existence, that things exist somehow utterly in terms of their own self-sufficiency. And I think this is very close, in fact, to what um, I've been speaking of as a sense of our necessity. Um, For something to inherently exist means that it doesn't actually have to 
depend upon anything other than its own being to be there. Now again, intellectually, we probably don't have any difficulty with that idea. Of course, everything that comes into being comes out of causes and conditions and circumstances and so on, is contingent in that way and will become a cause or a condition for something else. Even though we know that intellectually, intuitively, instinctively, and particularly in relation to myself, that's not how I feel at all. I have the sense that there is some little homunculus, Stephen, inside here somewhere, peering out at you lot, and has been doing this ever since Stephen has had his first memory, probably around the age of three. And that is a very uh, deeply embedded perception, one that is almost certainly hard, hardwired is the wrong word, but built into our neurobiology. And probably for very good reasons. It's not there just by accident, but because it conferred upon our earlier ancestors certain survival advantages. But it's become something that's almost impossible um, to, uh, uh, to see through. It's a fixed thing. And it's now, rather than giving us survival advantages, it's arguably become a kind of cancerous growth. It has become, for the Buddha at least, uh, the very thing that actually prevents us from being fully alive. The sense that deep down inside ourselves somewhere, we are a fixed, permanent thing. That is, uh, in Buddhism, the core grasping or clinging that is again identified with Mara, the killer. That is a kind of inner death. In modern um, parlance, we might call this um, a, sen a deep sense of alienation. We feel somehow cut off, um, removed from the processes of life themselves, uh, life itself. We, 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 we feel crucially separated from others. We know that we're a part of this biosphere, but that's not how we feel. We, we feel lonely, we feel cut off, we feel um, lacking in any true intimacy with the world or with other people. And this, I feel, is very much at the root of what it is that emptiness is trying to free us from. And to do that, one can pay simply more attention to how everything within one's experience is constantly rising in dependence upon conditions and passing away. And the Buddha describes the whole process of consciousness in terms of an external sense object, a sound or a sight or a smell or a taste, impacting one of the sense organs, and through that impact there then emerges the consciousness of a sound, the consciousness of a taste. Consciousness, although some later Buddhist traditions emphasize it as being a kind of intrinsic property uh, somehow within us, cut off from the body, 
is in early Buddhism thought of very much as, again, a contingently emergent property that occurs when this organism impacts the sensory world. Consciousness has no privileged status at all. And so by paying attention to this, and, and, the, and this kind of awareness meditation is very much about doing just that, just noticing. In this kind of meditation, we're not asking you to introduce anything that's not already apparent. You don't have to visualize anything or say a mantra or kind of imagine some complicated mystical theory. You just have to stop, sit still, stand still, or walk slowly, and notice the sheer sensory experience that is happening to you in each moment. That's the exercise. And in fact, it's a practice in which we are, are stripping things away rather than, rather than adding anything on. We're trying to get down to the kind of uh, the ground note, the base note of experience itself. We're trying to touch something in this meditation that is very, very primary in experience itself. So rather than being caught up in thoughts and memories and fantasies and so on, which is very much, in a, as it were, skating along the surface of experience, we pay less attention to that and we come back to the primary fact of sitting, of breathing, of listening, of being aware of the sensations in our body. And that, I feel, is an extraordinarily radical thing to do. It puts us into contact with another way of being in this world, one that initially may require a lot of effort and, and hard work, and it's some, sometimes a bit of a struggle, and it's sometimes rather tedious, and we'd rather be doing something more exciting, like going to the beach. But if we bring our attention back, and we try to sustain and, and preserve this kind of attention, we begin to reorient our experience into a radically different perspective, now, this, so, so things are empty, therefore, because they arise and pass away, dependent upon conditions, become conditions for something else. There's nothing um, uh, self-existent or inherently existent or necessary to any particular aspect or element of our experience. It's constantly in flux, in process, it's coming, it's going, it's almost miraculously happening and passing into something else. And yet we're constantly somehow resisting opening ourselves to that perspective. And again, not just mentally, but I think almost uh, physiologically, we're somehow resistant to opening ourselves to that way of being in the world. So we require, as it were, a kind of constant um, penetrating inquiry and investigation into things, what the Buddha called Dhamma Vichaya, the investigation of phenomena. 
And one of the ways in which this idea of emptiness is understood, again by Tsongkhapa, is that emptiness doesn't refer to anything whatsoever, how, no matter how you know, transcendent or mystical. But emptiness is a way of talking about the ultimate unfindability of anything. The ultimate unfindability. That when we look, for example, for this very, well, what appears for much of our lives to be the center point of our entire existence, namely me, I mean, so much of our thoughts just basically circle around and are a sort of running commentary on me. But when you try to actually pin this, uh, this incredibly important thing down, whether you look in meditation or whether you consider it philosophically or whether you cut yourself open with a scalpel, you don't find anything that corresponds to that sense of me. And this is a very curious discovery. What seems so real turns out to be utterly um, elusive. In a text that's attributed to Nagarjuna, but probably was written sometime later, there's a, again a, 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 a very good analogy. It says it's like a bit. It's a bit like a person who's lost in, in a desert and sees in front of them an oasis with palm trees and camels and so on and starts heading towards it. But the closer they get, the more that image evaporates and is realized to be a mirage. And it's a bit like that with this sense we have of, uh, of ego. From a distance, from the distance of, say, ordinary day-to-day -day existence, it appears terribly real. But as soon as you, go, you get closer to it, it somehow vanishes. It's less, uh, um, it becomes entirely ungraspable. That's very curious. But it's perhaps no more curious, really, than, uh, let's say, a physicist's um, examination of, of, let's say, a table. From an ordinary, everyday perspective, it's a table, and he'll put his, his laptop computer on it. But when you go deeply into what that table actually is, you don't find anything table-like at all, or anything even matter-like. Matter begins to break down into something very um, un-matter-like, uh, just swirling particles and electrons and atoms and quarks and leptons and whatever, which is largely space. And when you take it down into a quantum level, it's just something like, you know, pr probabilities. It all becomes extraordinarily weird. And yet, once that uh, particular investigation is, is suspended, then, you know, the physicist will have no difficulty putting his laptop computer on the table and will not worry that it will sort of collapse into a black hole. <laughs> and I think the same goes in terms of the relation between our what we, someone referred to yesterday as our autobiographical self, and, as it were, its, um, its empty nature. It's not that the empty nature of the self or the contingent nature of the self somehow negates the self any more than quarks and lebdons and quantum probabilities negate the table. It's simply another perspective, but a perspective that can be 
at least in terms of the Buddha's understanding of contingency, extremely liberating. And so as we, as, as we settle in our meditation, as we uh, become stiller and more focused, it's this kind of perspective on things that can begin to open up. So for example, if you have a pain in your knee, what can be quite um, uh, uh, revealing is to go into that pain instead of our usual way of saying, oh my God, I don't like this pain in my knee, I wish the bell would go. And we get into this aversive relationship with the pain in our knee and we start having all sorts of fantasies like, my God, if the bell doesn't go in a minute, I'll never walk again. <laughs> Which, by the way, you, you, you will. <laughs> um, but if you go into the pain if you actually uh, probe it with attention and mindfulness, you can get to a point where suddenly that little, that, that, that what feels like a sort of a, a solid needle of agony begins to break up, begins to resolve into effectively just a pattern of, of vibrations, uh, sensations. And you can actually get into that pain in a way that it ceases actually to be terribly painful anymore. And so what's, I think, important on a retreat like this is to, is to, is to push the envelope, as they say, of the possibilities of our conscious experience. To, to still our minds and to apply that kind of attention uh, to things that otherwise we would habitually just react against or we would try to grab and instead just try to look more deeply and more carefully with a kind of disinterest, not thinking of it exclusively in terms of me and mine, but considering yourself a bit like you know, a scientist in a laboratory simply you know, looking through a microscope at things for a change and thereby uncovering not just intellectually, as you, would, you could do just by reading a book, but experientially, to recognize how we can, with not a huge amount of effort, we can actually learn to be in this world in a, from another perspective altogether. Now, since we're on this subject of emptiness, another way I feel that is helpful to understand what it means uh, comes from Nagarjuna himself, in which, um, in one of the verses that constitute his most important work, he says, Buddhists say that emptiness is letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. Now, believers in emptiness are incurable. In other words, if you have a a fixed view of emptiness as something, something a bit like God perhaps, then you've already missed the point. And in fact, um, you'll be doing something which is actually in complete opposition to what this idea of emptiness is intended for. For Nagarjuna, emptiness is a letting go of opinions. It's not an emptiness at all. It's actually more like an emptying. It's a letting go. It's a dropping off of fixed views and fixed ideas. 
And I think it's helpful to think of emptiness this way because it gets us out of the almost inevitable assumption that because the word emptiness is a noun, it thereby refers to something. And you have books written on Buddhism like Meditation on Emptiness, which gives the unavoidable um, assumption that if you meditate long and hard enough, one day you will discover emptiness and you will meditate on emptiness. But that, I think, is extremely misleading. It, it, it makes it out, again, it, it's really, I think, slipping back into a kind of normative religious language in which you privilege certain key terms. In Christianity, it would be God and Christ and whatever. In Buddhism, it would be nirvana, liberation, and emptiness. And we so... so, so, and we so um, eagerly make things out of these things. We reify them. We, we, we make them into kind of absolutes. And so instead of thinking of emptiness as some kind of absolute reality or some ultimate reality, which is very, very dodgy to think in those terms, to think of emptiness actually as something that you don't believe in or long for, but as something that you do. So each time you see your mind crystallizing into a, a kind of fixed idea or a belief, don't take it so seriously. Don't become so invested or identified in it. And particularly if you have some grand insight or revelation in your meditation, which I hope you do, don't make the mistake of then reifying that as enlightenment making it again immediately into a kind of iconic object, my enlightenment experience, which you'll then go and bore your friends with for years on end. When I was in India, I was in Benares. <laughs> and, oh, no, not that story again. <laughs> and as soon as you do that, you're somehow, again, you've crystallized, you've, you've, you've rendered something which is meant to be somehow releasing, and you've made it into another object of, of, of personal identity and attachment. So there's very much, I think, a sense of this emptying, which is a, a sense of releasement, a sense of, of letting go. And we'll speak more about this tomorrow, because to, letting go again is a question that begs, is a, an idea that begs another question, namely, well, how do I let go? We'll look at that tomorrow. One of the ways in which I think Buddhism has fallen into the trap of uh, normative uh, religious thinking is in its adoption of the doctrine of uh, the two truths. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Buddhist literature and, and philosophy will have no doubt come across this, namely that uh, there is an absolute truth or an ultimate truth the paramata satya, on the one hand, and on the other hand, there are these relative conventional truths of the world. And um, emptiness is very often identified with what is absolutely true, with what is ultimately true, whereas the ordinary truths that we use to negotiate the 
day-to-day uh, uh, -day existence of our lives. These are just conventional truths, the truths that, you know, the sun rises in the east and um, it's going to be, you know, and, and it was hot on Sunday and uh, Joe lives up at Two Station Road. All of those kinds of things are true, but they're only conventional truths. They're only, as it were, uh, just rather trivial or, or partial truths that are useful for functioning in this world, but they do not tell us about what things really are. So it's conventionally true to say, yes, I'm Stephen. But if I were to say, but what is Stephen really, then I would not be able to just say, well, Stephen is Stephen. But I would be called upon to say something more profound. Uh, the same thing with the table. There's the, 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 this table that we have, but if you look deeply into what the table really is, you come up with something rather different. Now, when it's... Um, uh, I, I'm not suggesting that that distinction can't be useful. I think it can. But I think it's probably outweighed by it being more problematic than anything else. And what is uh, very striking is that um, although all the Buddhist traditions, including the Theravada, the early school, they all base their thinking very much in terms of these two truths. This, the absolute truth and the relative truths. But nowhere in the entire Pali canon, in any of the discourses of the Buddha, in any of the texts concerning monasticism, does the Buddha ever use these terms. They're completely absent. You find them in Mahayana Sutras, you find them in the Abhidharma, the later systemization of what the Buddha taught, but you don't find the Buddha using this language whatsoever. And I think that's a point that's worth pondering upon. Why not? And why is it that later traditions so rapidly enclose the Buddha's doctrines within this two-truth framework? I think one of the reasons is because it's somehow... Um, brought Buddhism more into line with conventional religious thinking. And if you think of what we spoke of yesterday from the Upanishads, that model is very much about an absolute truth, Brahman, or God, and as opposed to the conventional truths, as it were, of the illusory world. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a split-world theory a split reality theory. And the Buddha resisted this, and probably because it would have drawn him back into the frame of thinking that he was uh, quite clearly seeking to break free from. But it seems that the hold of that kind of thinking is so strong in human beings that almost inevitably we tend to slip back into it. What is also striking, of course, is that um, it's overtly dualistic. It's a bit like the body and the mind split. It seems convenient to us, for whatever reasons, to split the world in two. We split our experience into two, our physical experience and our spiritual experience, the body and the mind, and we split reality into two. 
the ultimate reality, the absolute reality, and the conventional or the relative reality. But that, I feel, is symptomatic um, of um, an attempt to try to somehow explain things that otherwise appear ambiguous, appear uh, difficult to grasp. I would like to imagine a Buddhist discourse in which any kind of dualism is, um, is absent, a genuinely non-dualistic discourse, no body-mind split, no absolute relative split. The other problem with this absolute truth idea is that it suggests very strongly um, uh, an ontology, now, ontology is a word that some of you may not be familiar with. It comes from the Greek ontos, which means being, and logos, which means to think or to speak about. And it's a theory of what things actually are. In other words, um, you know, what is the nature of being? I don't think the Buddha was remotely interested in this. And yet, as soon as you make emptiness into the ultimate truth, which most Buddhists do, then you've actually begun what's called uh, a theory of being. What things really are is empty or contingent. That's their ultimate reality. Um, that's not what the Buddha was saying at all. He does use an expression, yata bhutang, that is often translated um, as uh, just as things are. See things as they are. And sometimes you'll find um, in meditation instructions that if you, if you somehow just clear the mind of, of kind of deceptive concepts and words and ideas, uh, if you cleanse the, uh, the, the senses of all of that, those, uh, that obstructive stuff, you will then see things as they are, which again suggests you'll see reality as it is. I think that language is entirely alien to what the Buddha was about. And in fact, when you look closely at the word yata bhutang, it actually doesn't mean that anyway. Yata means thus or like this, and bhutang means as things have come to be, as things have emerged. It means to emerge, to arise, to develop, not to be. And the Buddha was not concerned, therefore, with establishing um, or a, an enlightenment based on the nature of experiencing the nature of reality. That, 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 I think that is completely false. The Buddha was concerned with paying attention to certain features of our experience that were we to understand more deeply and intuitively will free us, will liberate us from certain graspings, attachments, obsessions, compulsions that cause us, our lives, to be painful and alienated and boring and dull and frustrating. The Buddha's approach, quite explicitly, is therapeutic. It's liberative. He's not concerned with understanding the nature of reality in any kind of ontological sense but rather paying attention to features of experience 
that we tend intuitively to ignore. Impermanence, contingency, selflessness, dukkha. These things are, um, are liberating because they free us from the counter view that things, including myself, are permanent, they're kind of satisfactory, and then me or mine. It's breaking the stranglehold of those perceptions that liberates us to become more fully what we can be. And that doesn't require gaining some privileged mystical or philosophical insight into the way things are. It's the way things have come about that the Buddha is interested in observing. And again, not as any exercise in its own right. He's not a philosopher in that sense, but he's only concerned with noticing and experiencing these aspects of experience because they can liberate us from perceptions and views that cause us suffering. I feel that's very central to what this whole business is about. And that brings us to the end of what I'm going to mention today. Uh, tomorrow, I'll look more at how uh, I'll look more at how this process um, is constructed as a path um, by considering the model of the four uh, noble truths. Uh, so, thank you for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.